Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of an episode that we started a few weeks ago with um, Henry Lydiot, our art law uh, expert and advisor. Uh, and you remember after the last podcast, in fact, we've had one since then, which Henry also guested on uh, with where we rather self-indulgently discussed the 1970s and the art world, <laughs> some nostalgic um, memories there. Uh, with Top Taylor as well, but we're coming back to Henry because there were a few, a few issues or a few topics that we didn't discuss that were on our list to discuss. So uh, we're going to be talking first, I think, a little bit about auction houses uh, and, and the law, uh, maybe with some anecdotes from Henry, uh, probably anonymous, but the kind of things that happen. Um, and then we'll look, we're, we might have a little discussion about commercial galleries. It, it, and then and then finish with um, something that Henry is a particular expert on, which is uh, artists' estates. So thank you very much, Henry, for joining us again on this. It started to rain again in London, and we haven't seen rain um, for for several weeks, I think. And uh, we're just discussing the thunderstorms that we've just been seeing. So um, yeah, good to be here, David. Thank you. Yeah. So with auction houses, Henry, um, as I understand it, partly from your teaching, but from my own experience of uh, of, of going to auctions and so on, I, I think when when one goes, I don't know how many of our listeners have been to a live auction or have even uh, watched one online. Now you can actually follow auctions live, and that's another issue you might want to talk about. Like the online, I was watching one yesterday from Bonhams, New York, and uh, you can join it. You can even bid if if I could register to bid and they probably check my credit ratings, et cetera. But as I was watching it, um, uh, the Bonhams site was was coming up with the, a paddle number when someone bid with the amount they were bidding or it was saying in room. And maybe that's a good place to start because obviously online and also at the live auction, um, there's a lot of anonymity involved. So even if you might see people putting their hands up when you're in, <clears throat> say, Sotheby's Auction House, Bond Street, uh, as we all know, that it's not necessarily that they're bidding for on behalf of themselves. They might be bidding on behalf of a client. Or yeah. I, as, as I understand it, a lot of um, people that would otherwise be recognised don't really want to be seen to be bidding by other people in the auction house, including the auctioneer. And the Sotheby's experts, for example, uh, they 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 prefer anonymity because they don't want people to see their interests, and they might get someone else in the room or even on the phone to follow maybe some little signs, secret signs they're making, um, you know, to 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 indicate to to instruct them what to do. And I know um, historically this has been going on since at least the 19th century because um, uh, the agent of the uh, Lord Hartford, who, which becomes the Wallace Collection in London, um, we've got a lot of the letters from from Hartford to his agent Mawson, who used to live near Soho Square, and um, one of them, he's uh, uh, Hartford, is saying, "I won't be at, no, I will be at the auction, um, but I will do the usual thing with my hat to indicate what I want you to bid, because you will be relatively anonymous in that auction." So that, that's maybe a good starting point about. The, the lack of transparency in some of the things auction houses do and some of our behaviour there, Henry. I don't know if you want to run with that idea. Um, I think it's difficult, David, because, as you rightly say, um, from time immemorial, for three or 400 years, anonymity has been a, 
an important feature uh, of auctions on the basis that there are many sellers, if you look at it like the auction house or the auctioneer, if you like, the auction business is in the middle between seller on the one hand and buyer on the other. Okay. And so if we take it that, and this has been, this is not me, this has just been going for hundreds of years, is that there are many sellers who want to sell anonymously. And that's why they either go to a dealer, maybe, uh, and consign it to them, or to an auction house. And they say to the auction house, I don't want my identity as the seller disclosed. Okay, what are the three Ds that we talk about in class that we know? People sell for three principal reasons, death, debt, and divorce. So a lot of people want to realize that liquefy their asset, whatever, but don't want the world to know. Okay. So hence the anonymity. It's been like that since time immemorial, as it were. Okay. If you take it on the other side of the equation, you've got the auction house in the middle. On the other side, you've got buyers. And similarly, but not the same, there are many buyers who don't want to be identified for the reasons you just pointed out. So there are many sellers who will only sell at auction for those reasons. And there are many buyers who will only buy at auction for those reasons. Because if they go to a dealer, okay, they need to identify themselves to the dealer if you see what I mean, so they know who they are. So a number of things arise as a result of that, and that's that, it's like the way things go, that's it. One of the big, biggest problems, I think, that both sellers and buyers should be aware of and can get into hot water or difficulties because of is that they may want to identify or retain their anonymity, but if from the buyer's point of view, it makes common sense, if not market sense and business sense, to be sure before you buy, before you bid, of the provenance, that's the ownership title, the history of the ownership, and of the authenticity of the work itself. If the seller doesn't provide their identity to the buyer, and they don't know who they are, then it makes it very difficult for a buyer to be sure that what they're buying is a legitimate sale. That's a risk they take. That 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 hoary old uh, legal doctrine that we all probably know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Or auction houses often say to the buyers in terms of conditions of sale, um, anything sold is sold, either, what's the phrase, as is, or as, as is, where is. 
So in other words, in, in legal custom, it, it, it means, certainly in the Anglo-American common law system, it means the buyer is deemed to have checked out the work. Deemed is the operative word. They may not have done it, but the law will say you had an opportunity to do so, therefore you ought to have done so. So don't blame the seller or the agent of the seller if you haven't done so. So, that's, so, the issue so it makes is... it very difficult. Sorry, sorry, David, just finish the point. Yeah. It makes it very difficult for a buyer. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy auction. I'm just saying it makes it very difficult for a buyer, especially if they're spending a lot of money, relatively a lot of money for them, to be sure that A, what its history is, and B, if it's authentic provenance and authenticity sure so it seems to me that the auction house would probably respond by saying um in the catalog we 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 give the the provenance details um so it and i guess we're kind of relying on the reputation of the auction house that that correct. That, that provenance is as they present it is correct uh hopefully they haven't omitted in any anything they've done a little bit of research and we get the provenance uh, i guess the problem is that the provenance of the current owner can remain anonymous and i guess one of the things you're saying is that uh we don't know whether that current owner has you know where is it if it if all it says is that purchased from the current owner from this gallery um we're trusting the fact that say it wasn't stolen or it wasn't part of an arms deal or, or whatever and that's why many people will only buy an auction another reason is that there are many kind of, um, certainly in the Anglo-American legal systems, there are many law uh, cases, well, not, not many. There are law cases that have happened that set precedents for saying that, I, I, I know also that there's a very similar, uh, in my experience, there's a very similar legal or judicial approach by the courts in, kind of continental European legal systems, which have a different attitude, but it amounts to the same thing. And what I'm saying is it amounts to the same thing that the more and more a buyer relies upon the professional standing and expertise of the seller or the seller's agent, the more likely it is that the law will back the buyer who has been sold something that's tainted, that's wrong in terms of provenance or authenticity, whatever, to say the buyer relied upon the, the good standing and reputation of, say, the auction business, okay, in spending a lot of money on the information that was given that they relied upon as being true or accurate. So, I mean, we're getting into the law here, which is ridiculous. I mean, you don't want to go there. But but what happens is, in terms of the most important thing, I think most uh, our, our world professionals will, will agree, is that the most important asset anyone has operating in the art world is reputation. Mm -hmm. And many of my students have, will know me saying that for years and years and years. And so what happens is if a buyer relies upon the good standing and reputation of the auction business, 
Often they're doing that because they know that if, particularly if they regularly buy from that auction house or at auction, if something is wrong with what they bought, they can just quite not go to law, not, not go firing from the hip and file a lawsuit. They go to the auction house and say, look, this is wrong. Can I have my money back? Mm -hmm. You know, whatever with compensation. And there are many, many uh, situations which I have certainly helped clients with, where the auction house, it just if they're spoken to clearly and gently and professionally and delicately and diplomatically, will go, yes, sorry about that. Give the money back. And then they turn to the seller and start talking to them delicately and quietly. And so we in the outside world, don't really get to know how much of that goes on. Sure. There are, there are some cool celebs that we, we, we read about in the papers. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. seen recently Caravaggio, I think was a, there was a Caravaggio a few years ago that, um, that the buyer from Sotheby's, I think, I believe I seem to remember it was Sotheby's, uh, they, they had expert advice once they bought it to, yeah, to yeah. say, actually, this is, um, uh, this isn't a Caravaggio, or it was, maybe it was the other way around. But it happens in both my, ways. Around. In my experience, yeah. the uh, well, I, I won't say all auction houses because I don't have experience of all. But but in my experience, most auction houses, whether they're at the the the, the leading main auction houses, the 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 Christie's of this world, or middle range or even lower range, in my experience will always try to keep the thing quiet from mm -hmm. the public sphere and have some kind of quiet compensatory arrangement with um, whether it, it, certainly with, with the buyer, sure. to avoid all the adverse publicity, which can yeah. damage the... And the, 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 the cases that we have that go to law, that, that, that are very rare, as we know, but they're very rare where that has been tried and failed. Yeah. And somebody, of course, as I understand it, Henry, yeah. from your teaching, as I understand it, um, there are, like with many other things in the art world, there are uh, very few laws that specifically mention um, fine art uh, or are dedicated yeah. to the buying and selling of art. Um, but recently we saw in the UK money laundering, which I think, did actually meant you know it was actually targeted at ah, the yeah, art. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think that the 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 the, the move around the, the developed marketplaces in the world, which includes our art market art in the, globally, um, apart from mainland China, okay. <clears throat> well, no, no, no. I'll start again including mainland China, I was thinking about cryptocurrency because mm -hmm. cryptocurrency has been outlawed in mainland China. Sure. So that's not on. But leaving that aside, in the main marketplaces for in the art world, whether it be the leading one, the USA, as we know, or the next leading one, which is mainland China, or the next leading one, which is the UK, the next leading one, which is the EU, Okay, one, two, three, four, in that order, as of 
latest statistics for last year. There, there are anti-money laundering laws. And the anti-money laundering laws, although the USA federally is kind of rather odd in the sense that they've introduced anti-money laundering laws strongly, particularly for banks, but also financial transactions and so on. But they haven't quite federally specified that it applies to fine art sales. As I understand it, the uh, lawmakers are waiting to see whether they need to specify fine art as against they have specified antiquities. Because, as we know, the sale of architecture, urban architecture, archaeologically found materials, you know, two or three thousand years old, there's a massive illicit trade in that around the world and it finds itself in the USA and I think legislators uh, on Capitol Hill have realized that they ought to embrace the exchange of, of money of dirty money for those dirty artifacts but they haven't gone so far as to say it will apply to what the rest of the art world like mainland China Europe and the UK especially and others have done which is to specifically legislate for what we would call you know fine art or not antiquities sure okay in which case the uh, art dealers or art market professionals have been named specifically in the legislation and they have to comply with KYC know your client mm -hmm. so if you're in the middle <clears throat> whether it be an auction house or as a dealer you know as an agent or you're actually selling and buying whatever if it's your professional trade not this is, doesn't apply to private buyers like if you sell something to me you're not an art trader and i'm not an art trader either i'm not an art market professional but art market professionals are caught by the anti-money laundering legislation, which says they have to register with whatever the national registration system is to say, I am an art trader. And they have to set up systems for monitoring how they're going to know their client. Who are they? Where do they live? Where do they come from? And more importantly, where does the money come from? Is it dirty money or is it the proceeds of crime? And the penalties for not doing that are quite strong and substantial. I think those measures that I've just described in a nutshell, but essentially they're similar, but not quite the same every, in, 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 everywhere that they operate. Mm have only been introduced at the beginning of what we would call the pandemic, towards the end of 2019 and 2021, applied to the, the art market, okay, to apply to the art market. And therefore, it's really too early to say how that, those measures, will impact upon the anonymity question that you asked me about in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I believe there's a threshold uh, monetary value. I think it's £10,000 at the moment. Anything that's more than £10,000, they have to do 
10,000 or more yeah. for any single transaction. Yeah. And one of the so, things we've seen, Henry, as you know, in the in the new millennium, uh, it's really, really increased. And that is the uh, setting up of compliancy departments in the big auction houses. So they have yeah. whole departments that are about compliancy. Yeah. Under the regulations, uh, the anti-money law, AML, the anti-money yeah. laundering regulations, the uh, 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 traders, professionals, are required to set up a training system to train their people that work for them to be able to spot and research and do all that stuff in relation to the possibility of dirty money. And if they think there may be a possibility, they have to report it to the authorities. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know, maybe we've we've kind of really spoken um, about a few of the main issues already uh, with between both galleries and auction houses would you is there anything else you wanted to say about galleries and auction houses or or should we move on to to talk about artist estates and I think, I think i think the only thing i would say is that i'd like to say uh, and hopefully our listeners will um will be interested in this um i've been this past month this is really ocaron this past month, I've been really interested in the new venture launched by Simon Dupuri. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you're. I think, you, I think maybe explain to the listeners about Simon Dupuri because he kind of he's still there, very big player in Simon the art Dupuri world. Simon is, is is of my generation, my age. He's a Swiss, uh, born Switzerland, um, and. He started to work for Sotheby's in Switzerland in the 1970s. Then, to cut a long story short, he became the chief worldwide auctioneer for Sotheby's. I mean, famous reputation, right? And then he left Sotheby's, having established his reputation, his contacts, and went into becoming a private dealer. Okay, so it was kind of like, you know, let's join the competition, right? With Daniela Luxemburg, who is a well-known dealer in London. So he set up uh, a, 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 a company or a partnership with her. And together, they either did a deal with or bought, I can't quite remember, the auctioneer's Phillips. Phillips, so, sorry. Phillips Dupori. I think it was the Philip, Phillips Dupori Luxembourg at, at right. some point. Anyway, then eventually, so that worked. And what was interesting about the positioning of, 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 of Phillips during that period was that they positioned themselves to be especially interested in taking consignments for and selling contemporary art, photography, design. Street art fine art furniture, and so on, yeah. to distinguish themselves from the Christabies yeah. and the Bonhams and all that stuff. And then, uh, at a certain point, Daniela Luxemburg went back into being a private dealer, which she still is, and eventually, I think, Phillips or Dupuri, whatever it was, sold or his ownership, if he was the owner, not quite sure. To what is it? The Russian 
luxury goods organization, whatever it's called. Yep. Is it yep. Mercury or something like that. Mercury, I think. Uh, who owned it? Just now, in case we're wrong, uh, in inverted commas, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> then he, then he, was, he set up his own company yeah. called Dupuri. Okay, I think it, it, it was either with his wife or his daughter, it was called Dupuri Dupuri. Mm -hmm. But now it's just called Dupuri. That's him, right? Yep. So he has vast experience. He's the veteran, the guru of private dealing and of auctioneering. Mm -hmm. What I was particularly interested in this month, which is August 2022, is that he's just launched a new venture. And the new venture is that his company is going to um, hit many, many issues that have bothered him over the years because he's, he's gone public and explained why, which is that he's, try, he's combining auctioneering and private dealing with championing young, emerging, hot contemporary artists and he's dealing with the anonymity issue mm -hmm. because his feature of this and the, the works that he chose and created, six, uh, curated 16 works, which are currently, as we speak, this, here we are, the 17th of August, on display online, dupuri.com, right? You can see all the works. You can register if you want to for the live auction. The live auction is going to be conducted next week. Okay. But the terms and conditions of this are that 100% of the buyer's premium will be paid to the artist. So the artist will pay no fee to Dupori for, for making this, these sales which is unusual because normally the seller has to pay 10%. And I, I think it's an all-women auction as well. Well, that, that's... Yeah. Leaving aside what it is. But, yeah. but the, the point is the buyer's premium is 18%. Yeah. As against the leading auction house, it's currently charging 26%. Oh. Okay. And what's more... Because the theme of this show is entitled Women, Art in a Time of Chaos, chaos yeah. he's chosen works made by women, young women artists of his choice that has been made since just about the beginning of the pandemic. So it's work. So he's doing a primary sale, which artists never do, at auction. Actually, just to, I think that you said um, in error that it was the buyer's premium goes to the artist. It's actually 100% of the hammer price goes to the artist and the oh, gallery. Did I say that? I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just clarifying that no, because I, you, I couldn't David. kind of work out quite. That's yeah. So presumably, De Pure, presumably, Depuri makes money out of the out of the premium, but yeah. the hammer price goes. Only Just to clarify that again, yeah, thank yeah. you, David. I'm sorry if I got it wrong. Yeah, okay, the hammer price, hundred percent, goes to the artist. Sure. Right, which means the artist does not pay a seller's commission. That's amazing. To, 
to the yeah. alt-right. So he's so ostensibly he's supporting emerging he's supporting artists. The, exactly. Yeah. And the buyer's premium, which in the main auction houses is an additional 26% of the hammer price, is in his case 18%. Right? Yeah. That's where he makes his money. But because the theme of this show is women, because it's women artists, he has committed to paying 3% of his 18% premium fee to the United Nations charity for women. Interesting business model. Yeah. And what's more, as it is, these are all legal terms and conditions. So I was particularly interested. Yes, in. yeah. He has got the buyers to agree that if they are buyers, they agree, terms and conditions, that their identity will be supplied to the artist. Interesting. And all the bidders sign as well about the terms and conditions. Their identity will be supplied as well to the artist. So the artist not only gets 100%, but also gets the name and identity of the buyer and of all the underbidders that were interested in buying the work. So then they can market their own work should they want to, or their gallery exactly. can on behalf of them exactly. to those people. Exactly right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, I think, but it's, I it's think anonymous... But but you and me wouldn't get that information, would we? It remains, it's only known no, to... No, it's only to the, yeah. the, the, the seller. Yeah. yeah, sure. But what an interesting... Because normally when you, when you sell, you, you may not get the identity of the buyer because mm. the buyer has said to the auction business, I want to remain anonymous. Yes. Okay. Only if something goes wrong might, might, might there be a need for a disclosure, but that's a, a kind of legal issue. But the underbidders, think about the underbidders. You might have like 10 underbidders who are don't receive who are unsuccessful. Yeah. All those will yeah. be supplied to the artist. And all everyone who signs up the auction has agreed to that being yeah. done. And I guess the point of that is that the artist can look through that list of underbidders and offer them, say, you know, I've got another yes. work like this. Would you like me to, you know, offer you for, you know? first refusal on the next work I make and all of that sort of business. So so when you said to me, is there anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> I'd like That's to a say very good. <laughs> I'd like to say that Depori, I take my hat off to him um, for trying to combine or blend some of the 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 uh, I was gonna say evils, some of the the concerns he's had Yep. about the way contemporary artists were dealt with by both auction houses and by dealers in his, his experience over the past 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, it'll be interesting to see whether any other, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that's successful and goes smoothly, that you'll see that that model being adopted by other people. What do you think? I think I I think it's. I mean, what it, isn't there? Uh, wouldn't there? Would couldn't there be pressure even on the big auction houses, Sotheby's and Christie's, to have sales? I, I think there is. I yeah. think a uh, 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 worst, it's food for thought for yep. everyone else. Yeah. And at best, it will influence them to do something similar. 
Yeah, because you're, it's a very good badge to wear. I'm supporting emerging artists by doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's more, if the artist is represented exclusively by a gallery dealer, whether it be your big Gagosians, Horson Worth, or White Cube, or whoever, or even a smaller, you know, young and emerging gallery, yeah. then mm. Dupori will take the work on consignment for a first sale mm. only if the gallery agrees to do that. Yeah. So in other words, it's like we know that galleries share with other galleries. I've got this exclusive right with this artist I've signed up. But if you, my mate on the other side of the world or in another country, can find a buyer, I will let you be the seller and we'll share our, shall we say, 50% of the selling price. Commission, yes. The gallery might split it with, with the other gallery. So in a way, in a way, this model from Depore is doing a similar thing where the gallery and the artists are saying, okay, let's consign it to Depore. Mm -hmm. We'll get 100% of the hammer price, for God's sake. Mm. And then we'll split it 50-50. What are we losing? Nothing. And we're getting all the information about who the buyer is and all the underbidders. What's not to like? But isn't it also... Could, what's stopping galleries from doing the same thing, saying, right, we're going to do what Dupuri has just done. We're going to have an auction of that our... exactly what Dupuri <laughs> has said about yeah. this. For years, he said very clearly that in the 1990s, the main auction houses decided that they were suffering fierce competition from dealers why don't we become also become dealers? dealers. Yeah. So yeah. auction businesses now are the or the main ones are also dealers. And in fact, Depori says, and, and I, I, I can't gainsay him, that the profitability of the main auction houses relies upon private sales. Exactly. So yeah. auction houses are both dealers and, and so. He said, why should dealers like him also conduct auctions? It's very funny, yes. QED. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember in the early 2000s when I used to do introductory lectures to, the, you know, the art market, uh, it used to be, 50, I used to have a, a pie chart and it was 50-50 uh, the private treaty sales that auctions did compared to their auction sales. Now, I think in Claire McAndrew's recent reports, it's 60% are now private treaty sales and only 40% are auctions. I think that's right. I think, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's something David, like that. Yeah. for your listeners who may be alumni, hmm. but if they're not, and they are, they are just embarking upon an, a master's in art business, what we've just discussed about Dupuri and all that it involves would make a fantastic dissertation subject. Absolutely. No, definitely. Is this a model that, that is going to survive and thrive? Yeah. I think 
let's i mean there's plenty <laughs> there's plenty <laughs> more we can talk about we haven't even touched guarantees and irrevocable bids but i think we'll leave that one alone for the time being the reason i thought of guarantees and irrevocable bids is i as you were mentioning Simon de Puri, i do remember that when he was in phillips uh, when the art world was about to crash for the first time in the new millennium you'll remember in in the, the winter of 2008 um do you remember what happened there as i understand it Phillips de Puri was actually challenging the duopoly of Sotheby's and Christie's by offering better guarantees than they were offering uh, to to vendors. Yeah. And yeah. then the whole thing crashed and they they lost a lot of money, as I understand it from the press and so on and from hearsay that 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 that. Well, that is David, what you just said about that, about that time, certainly when when the financial crash happened to the world or most of the world in 2008 with Lehman Brothers going yeah. on the same day that David, uh, yeah. <laughs> people inside my head forever, let's say that something's in London. Yeah. It illustrates the fact that, um, well, well, many things. But, uh, what it your point about going financially bust or the shares, as I remember in Sotheby's, went from something like $36 a share mm. down to something like $15. I mean, yeah. it was really suffering badly. Yeah. But it was because of guarantees and irrevocable bids, which in loose jargon, in amongst my clients and colleagues, we call pre-sales. Basically, a guarantee in a rival bid is the auction house, with the permission of the seller, pre-selling it before the auction. Mm -hmm. If the auction gets higher bids than the guarantee or the irrevocable bid, for the, then, then obviously it overtakes the pre-sale. Mm -hmm. But those guarantees and irrevocable bids were pre-sales, mm -hmm. which meant that when the market crashed in 2008, those auction houses were committed because many of the guarantees were made by they themselves. So yeah. they had to pay. Yeah, and they they were they were made before the crash happened in September. <laughs> so they, they, before, yeah. they were stuck with it. And as I understand it, I think I think De Puri was had had actually uh, consigned a lot of very important works that he knew Sotheby's and Christie's wanted as well by offering better guarantees. Uh, and then they they didn't they failed to sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so moving on to so we've we've touched on emerging artists uh, with this Dupuri sale coming up next week. Yeah. Uh, um, also, you know, uh, keying in on the on the increasing uh, value of emerging women artists like black artists as well that we've seen in the last year or two. Um, but um, artists die as well. And I know that your business is very interested in what happens when an artist dies to their to their work, to their stock. Precisely. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that and the legal yeah. complications it can cause? It, 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 there, there's two ways um, to look at this issue, David, which is that leaving aside that in recent years, maybe the past five years, there's become an industry has burgeoned of galleries 
representing the estates of recently died artists. Okay, it it it, it happened obviously before for many years before, but it's become an industry in its own right. You see what I mean? Okay. Because in my experience, artists store away work that they regard as being good, really good, and not offering it for sale and not even sometimes offering it for exhibition. And the reason why, in my experience, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying what I think, in my, artists tell me, when I say, to, when artists come to me and, and say, uh, or me and my colleagues and say, um, I'm getting towards the end of my life or I'm dying or whatever it may be, it happens. Um, my, my first question is, well, have you got unsold work? How much have you got? And where is it? And all that stuff. And most artists say, yes, I have. It's my best work, my very best work. And the reason why they've held it back, in most cases, those are typical cases, it's held back for their old age pension. <laughs> most artists do not have a pension. They can't afford to pay for a pension. And the state pension wouldn't be enough for them to live on. So what do they do? They say, there may come a time where I'm ill or infirm or I've got dementia or whatever it may be, and I'm not able to make work anymore. I'm not able to run my own affairs. I need some money. That's my nest egg. Many, many artists say that. And it's a common practice for that to be done. So the family doesn't necessarily know about it if there is a family. Any dealers don't know anything about it if there are dealers, okay? And institutions don't know anything about it if they've shown their work. So what happens is there are two, two ways of looking at it. One is the way my practice works is that I've got artists at various ages and stages, the older they are, seeking out advice and help for estate planning. What are we going to do? What, okay, what are we going to do with the unsold work? What do we do with my archive? What do we do? Let's plan, 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 plan. And you don't get very young artists doing that but you get certainly middle-aged artists or infirm or artists who've been physically or mentally damaged in some way where their mortality is in question. They start to say, oh, what do I do about what has been my practice or whatever? And then that's one side of what I do. And then the other side of it is when an artist has died, and they haven't done any estate planning, right? And they, there is a family that inherits all this stuff, archived the law. And usually the, the, the kind of family that comes to me are not artists. The children are not artists. The grandchildren are not artists. They don't know the first thing about the practice, whatever. 
or if they do know something about it, they don't know enough. And they say to somebody like me, what do I do? So it's, it, it's looking, do you see what I mean? Yeah. It's, and they are the same issues, David. Yep. It's the same issues. You know, first of all, the work needs on death, whether you're looking forward to it or it has happened, right? The issues are identify the work. Where is it? Inventorize it. Categorize it. Secure it. Safely ensure it. And then seek advice as to whether or not it has any cultural or market value. But well, if, you're, God's, if you're if you're in don't sell it. Yeah. So if you're insuring it, that surely implies an appraisal of its market value. Yeah. 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 So when, when you go all that, so yeah. you're kind of inventorying it and getting someone, probably a, someone from the auction, one of the auction houses, in to actually give it a market. If, value. if, if I have a dollar for every time. I've advised the family, I'll call it the family or the widow or the widower or mm -hmm. the children or whatever, of an artist who's died. If I had a dollar for every time I've said, I've said, don't sell, yeah. I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> do they always take your advice? Yeah, they do. Yeah. And they go, why? And yeah. then you explain the kind of things I do in, in classrooms for you as to why you shouldn't do that. Mm. You know, it, the analogy I always use is the artist dies, therefore the tap is turned off. Mm -hmm. the tap being yep. the production And there's, of there's more and more supply, less more demands, less there's supply. There's no supply, and therefore there's a finite body of work, and therefore mm. the marketplace can do its business. Sure. And you release, tend to release, when you see these things coming up for sale after artists die, we see it all the time at auction, you know, this year that you, you, you suddenly you suddenly think, why are there several of those for sale? And you suddenly realize that the guy's just died. Um, but it's, it tends to, if you're sensible, it would be a, a gradual release of works over a period of years. Well, well, it's interesting, for example, if you take uh, notable names, I, 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 these are not clients of mine, but Basquiat sisters inherited whatever. Yeah. They have, they didn't release anything. Yeah. They have just, and whether or not they've slowly released things, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But I think that the, that phenomenal rise in the market, value, in the secondary market yeah. value, yeah. is a lot to do with the fact that I think the sisters are sitting on most of the good stuff. Yeah. And they're very sensible because after he died, they probably wouldn't have got nearly as much as they would have got if they've waited until the new millennium. <laughs> oh, and, and Rauschenberg's estate did yeah. the same. Rauschenberg's son, Christopher, with the trustees. Yeah. I've, I've been very careful about, about, about not releasing the work. Yeah. And similarly, the Warhol Foundation have been very careful about not releasing the work. And, blah, blah, blah. and, so, and, and so it goes. But so you also the so you... learn there is don't sell. Don't go to the market. So you talked about the artist as they get to, you know, old age and so on, um, you know, that you, you you can advise them what to do and that they're using these works uh, as a pension pot, um, which is a really great idea. Um, and uh, presumably they could sell those either through their dealer or even at auction if they wanted to. 
to yeah. make the money. Uh, and then you've got the families of the deceased um, inheriting the estate of the deceased artists, which includes their their, their works of art but quite often we know that and, and uh, their archive david and the archive but quite often um you visit a gallery a commercial gallery um and they will say say gagosian and they will say oh well we we are we run the estate of uh of uh you know the deceased artists so we we we're the ones that represent their stock so are there cases where those galleries actually have purchase the entire stock off the family is that what's going on there or is it just only some of the no, no 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 i'm sure there must be cases where that happens mm. normally in my experience what happens if if a, a, a gallery whether it be major major mega gallery mm. or even lesser known galleries mm -hmm. there comes a time when well, I'll call it the estate, whoever it is, the estate, um, appoints yeah. a dealer to represent them. Yeah, I understand. So they don't run the estate. So they're not they're selling it to the dealer, not necessarily selling exactly. it to the dealer. Yeah. So what, what, what yeah. happened normally, how I've, had, I've had lots of experience with this, the, working with, with the family, I'll say mm -hmm. the estate, you have a meaningful conversation with the gallery owner about whether they look at work, they look at it, they get it, they can see market possibilities in that, they can see it safely secured, whatever it may be, or they might help yeah. with the, whatever. And what the estate, what I, I'm always clear, or well, not always clear, I'm as clear as I can be with the estate and the gallery. It's a very friendly, yeah. a, a very warm conversation about slowly releasing the work onto the market together with organization of shows, yeah. non-selling shows in institutions and so on and so forth to, to promote the legacy and the reputation and the interest of the art community in the artist's work and the worth and the value of the artist's work, not the market value, but so the two things, it's like that cultural or artistic value and, and, and market value being interrelated and interdependent. Yeah, which is which is in many ways what galleries are doing when, with their living artists as well. Uh, you know, we, right. all know, we all know that someone like Andreas Gursky uh once he become really big uh he will he limits the uh instead of producing say 500 uh versions of the you know prints of a, a digital photo uh, he makes five of them and his dealer and him offer them for free <laughs> to someone like moma which means that when they sell the other three they can say oh well moma has one of these you too can own one uh so it's that's a very good example i think of uh, when you've got additions that uh, the 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 cultural ranking of the work rises because it's owned by a major uh, public <laughs> gallery museum, um, and that 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 raises the market value of the other ones in existence. Yeah, Henry, I think it, we 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 pretty much reached the end. We, there's probably more that we could have said about that as well. But what I'd like to say to the listeners is that you've 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 heard of Henry's expertise and particular interests and. 
uh, in his professional work uh, and, and things like artist estates. So I will put the link to his to the Henry Lydiate partnership uh, in the um, you know when you when you listen to this podcast in in the in the written uh, description there. Uh, should you actually want to count, I'm sure Henry, you'll be quite happy for anyone who that these rings bells. Who's listening? That where any of these issues rings bells with them, and they'd like. I some always say, David, you know, I always say that both in the classroom and when I'm doing public talks or whatever of which this is one. If anyone wants to email me directly, then yeah. they can do. Great. Most well. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Henry, for those two, indeed three sessions with the County of the Mowit Top, uh, which have kept us going over the summer. And I, I hope have been um, interesting listening. I, I imagine that people are listening to these recent ones lying on a beach somewhere <laughs> in the world. Because <laughs> uh, in August, as everyone in the art world knows, the art world goes very quiet, other than C other than Seaman Dupuri, who's got his online. And of course, you can do online sales from anywhere. Uh, so watch out for that next week. I think it's the 25th of August. I think if you look I, on- I, I would I, yeah. I encourage everybody listening, if they're listening in time, to have a look at that. Yeah, yeah. So you can find, if you just Google, if you Google or there are other search engines, Dupuri, you will find uh, details of that auction. And I think you'll, yeah. So that that should be very interesting. The auction, just to say it again, is called. I'm not paid a commission by Simon <laughs> for saying this. Is called women colon a time in a time of chaos. Women in a time of chaos. Fantastic. So thank you, Henry, and um, I'll I'll look forward to. Um, I'm just trying to think who's who, which the next podcast is going to be. I don't think I've got anyone lined up yet, but I should. You should hear from me again in a couple of weeks, listeners, for the next podcast. So thank you very much, Henry. Thank you.